Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Ferguson, Missouri. This week, Pastor Josh and Pastor Patrick once again reflect upon this morning's study in a back-and-forth conversation-style sermon. Today, we name some of the specific cycles that restrict us, bind us, and even entrap us, offering a path to break those cycles, a path of repentance. This week's sermon, entitled Facing God, is the third in our Lenten worship series, Breaking Cycles from Separation to Wholeness. And our text today is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. To learn more about St. Peter's, you may find us on the web at www.stpeterschurch.org or on Facebook by searching St. Peter's UCC Ferguson. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 13, verses 1 through 9, found in the New Testament of your Pew Bible on page 64, if you would like to follow along. At that very time, there were some presents who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. And now the parable of the fig tree. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Blessings to the reading of God's word. So back when I was a teen, I was having a particularly angsty and rebellious day. I know, big surprise, one of your pastors had a little angsty phase. And I don't even remember what was going on that day, frankly. I couldn't even tell you what my mom and I were arguing about. But I do remember that we were having a discussion, as you will. And as often happens when we get a little angsty, I was convinced that I was right. And that clearly my mom just simply wasn't listening to what I was saying or else she would agree with me. And we could have been arguing about anything. Current events, my schedule, school assignments that I thought were stupid, or someone else who was not doing what they should, you know, a Galilean, or I mean just any other person who was a worse sinner than I was. And then my mother... And the true wisdom only she can give said, you sound like the pot calling the kettle black. 
And my response was, well, I probably should have just stopped there. Well, you know, the kettle isn't really black as much as it's gray. And my mom laughed and just walked away. While I continued to try to explain to her how the kettle was gray. At that moment, I fully embodied this saying that she had given to me, and I also fully embodied the cycle of superiority that I know better than anyone else. I embodied the cycle of lack of self-esteem and a lack of seeking to grow. There was a young woman who was a regular leader in worship for her youth group. She sang in the, in the worship band and, and did really a good job, frankly, for a long time until one particular day. On this day, there was a boy who was caught doing something in worship that, frankly, I can't talk about during worship. And the leader saw what was going on and pulled him aside to address it, and then also pulled her aside to be part of the conversation. And in this conversation, the leader informed the young woman that she needed to dress more modestly because she was causing a temptation for this boy. Just to be clear, she was wearing longer shorts and a tank top. Certainly modest clothing. And the leader informed her that if she did not change in that moment, she was no longer going to be a worship leader for the band. And the young woman rightly pushed back and said, I'm not dressed inappropriately. And she questioned why the boy was not being reprimanded as strongly as she was. But in that moment, she couldn't help but feel like she had done something wrong. The leader, in this case, embodied this cycle for what we blame and, frankly, oppress and perpetuate the cycle of other women and other minorities having to be more humble and clearly the leader and this boy was the one in need of repentance. There was a person once who was struggling hard with addiction. Initially, they were just using once a week, just to take the edge off, no big deal. But work and family life got harder and more demanding and longer hours. And there was less time to take care of yourself. And so stress ramped up, and so did the use of whatever this addictive behavior was. And the story continued. Stress went up, worry went up, commitments went up, and so did the addiction. And nobody really noticed or said anything. Friends might have said something like, well, you seem pretty busy lately, or I don't know how you juggle all your commitments. But eventually the use got to every day. This person had to use just and they knew they could stop at any time. It wasn't really an issue. Just as soon as the stress went away, they'd be fine. And then the family noticed. And they started to get worried and upset. Stop, they said, or it's going to be a problem. It was a problem. The person had to find a place to live suddenly because they couldn't stay with their family. Next thing they knew, the job was gone. But these continued. And every day was just a struggle to survive and to find a fix. The next thing they knew, the friends dropped off too, and the stares and the judgment continued. There's no fruit, they said. You don't really want to change. And so the person used and struggled. And they tried to get sober. In fact, they even had months of sobriety for a good while, but it never seemed to stick. And it was the same story. Judgment. Disappointment, use, struggle, truth. And then someone or something, or can I even say God, 
said, let's do this just one more time. Let's give it just one more try. And so they did. While everyone else was perpetuating the cycle of separation from this person, of judgment, of blame, and while this person was stuck in the cycle of despair naturally, God was stuck in the cycle of guilt one more year. Gosh, I don't think anyone here is surprised that one of their pastors would challenge a parent or be rebellious. I think the shock is that it was you and not me. (laughs) Another year. Just one more year. That's the amount of time that the owner of the fig tree offered to the gardener. One more year. If the tree didn't produce any more fruit after that one year's time, especially after the added care and after the added nurture, the extra fertilizer and and, 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 and care of the tree uh, and the attention that was given, then, then it needed to be cut down. It needed just to be thrown away and cast out, discarded, cast aside. One year. Just one more year is all it got. Now, one year seems like an eternity if you're a child and you're being told that's how long it is until Christmas rolls back around. But if you're on the clock, if you're expected to change your behaviors immediately, if you're expected to uh, be transformed completely and totally uh, expected to do an about face a year One year, 12 months, 365 days, it really doesn't seem like enough time at all. I have a good friend. She was once an active member and a leader within the congregation uh, I once served down in Athens. And at the time, she was working on her Ph.D. at the University of Georgia. Now she is a vice president for academic affairs and a dean at a university in California. And she came to me one day... And she said to me that she was entering into a 12-step program because the time had long since passed that she needed a change in her life. And not really a change as much as a complete overhaul, a complete transformation. Because that's what people do. That's what people do when they admit that there's an unhealthy dependency or a relationship or a cycle or an addiction or something Something, whatever it is, something that's controlling their lives, in their admission, they are confessing a desire for a transformation. Confession. Transformation. Now, those are words that should be familiar to those of us within the context of Christian faith community. She was not the first person who had come to me with such an admission, and Lord knows she certainly would not be the last. Over the years, I've been invited by friends, by family, by congregants to attend many an open meeting of a variety of 12-step programs, predominantly mostly Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyone can attend an open meeting. And I have to say that having attended all of those meetings over the years, I have come very much come to deeply appreciate the safety and the community, the beauty and the vulnerability, the pure raw and uh, pure and raw honesty that's exhibited within the walls of those rooms. And my friend, the dean, she and I often discuss collaborating on a book that would <clears throat> reflect upon the similarities and even some of the differences between step, 12-step communities and congregations. 
because you may not realize it, but these communities have a whole lot more in common than you might think. In fact, I have long theorized that, and it's been agreed upon by folks that I trust and respect as well as from my own observations, that 12-step rooms, 12-step programs and the rooms in which they meet, they tend to be more what God originally intended for the church to be, more so than the church often is. Those within 12-step groups tend to take their repentance and their need for transformation more seriously because they know that their lives literally depend upon that transformation. In fact, I am convinced that the foundation to recovery, the foundation to breaking any kind of addictive cycle, cycle of addiction, dependency, is not at all unlike the process we are expected to undertake during the Lenten season. Now, one of the 12 steps of AA, step four actually, is to take a personal inventory of one's behaviors and attitudes that prepares us then to confess to God or, if necessary, to others how those behaviors have entrapped us or impaired us, have bound us, have kept us from being the people that God created and has originally intended us to be. That kind of self-reflection really, I think, and truly embodies this entire 40-day journey of Lent. Reflection, confession, lead us to transformation. They lead us to wholeness and they lead us to a new identity, a new self, whether that new identity uh, is with God or that new identity is with our friends and with our family. Jesus told then a parable. There was a landowner. And on that land there was a fig tree. And he would come by very often. He would come by looking for something to eat, a fig to take off the tree. Every day he came by and every day he found nothing. And so he said to his gardener, he said, look, for three years... Three whole years, every day, over a thousand days, I come here wanting to pick some fruit off this tree, and there is nothing here. So just cut it down. Three years is long enough to wait, don't you think? So just cut it down, throw it away. Why should we be wasting the soil? That seems like such a waste. That seems like such bad stewardship. I was at church last week, and I even heard a sermon on stewardship and the earth, and how we should take care of it, and how that... They relate to one another. So just throw it away. And the gardener said, Sir, let's just leave it alone for one more year. It's been three. Let's just wait one more year. I have a plan. I have a process. I'm going to dig I'm gonna dig a trench around the tree. And I'm going to add some more fertilizer, some better soil. I'm going to enrich the soil, add some manure. And then I tell you what, sir, if after one year's time there is no more fruit on the tree... If it doesn't produce, then fine, we'll cut it down. Now, believe it or not, that is a parable of grace. It's a parable of grace, another chance, more opportunity. A parable of grace within the midst of teaching a story about judgment and repentance. For three years there was nothing. It was useless, it was done, it was dried up. It was taking up space and time and resources. But sir, just one more year. Let's just give it one more year. 
Maybe what it needs is more time, more care, more intentionality, more love. Let's give it more time and let's just see what happens, the gardener said. I mean, after all, don't we all just want a little bit more time, a little bit more care, a little bit more intentionality, a little bit more love? And just think, y'all, think what could happen. Think what would happen if we were willing to give so freely, so gracefully of those things. Time, nurture, intentionality, love. Just think, y'all, just think what would happen if we were more willing to even receive those things. More intentionality, more care, more love from other people. Can you imagine what kind of world, what kind of life that might be for each of us? Talk about a movement from Lent to Easter. But that's a journey that requires a whole lot of work. And it's work that's grounded in that grace. Dennis Dooling, a, a New Testament scholar, points out that this book of Luke that we're in today has a special concern for the sinners and the lost. It's filled with stories of people who would just get forgotten otherwise. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the sinner, is standing in a tree and calls to repentance and welcomed by Christ. There's a tax collector standing in the temple, and while the Pharisees, the religious folk, the pastors of the day, are judging this tax collector is celebrated as one who truly embodies repentance. And the thief on the cross, who, in the last moment before he dies, says, Christ, will you please welcome me? My life has been messed up. Please, will you welcome me? And the story of the lost sheep, and the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And yet there is still work to be done. There are still cycles that we have to break. And there are three particular cycles I think that the story of Luke here today tells us about. Three cycles. And the first one is this cycle thinking that we have total control over everything. Step one of the 12 steps that Patrick mentioned earlier is exactly this. Admitting that we are powerless over our addiction or our issue and that our lives have become even unmanageable. We think we can do it all. Kings and queens of the world, that we can stop doing whatever issue it is at any time that we know best. And in addiction, sometimes it shows up as defining our sobriety in ways that are comfortable for us. Oh, I'll just stop drinking hard liquor, or I'll just only binge on food once a month, or I'll just stop looking at porn, but other stuff might be okay. And sometimes this cycle shows up as arrogance, blatant arrogance, like Yankee teen Josh, but sometimes it shows up simply as willful ignorance. Just ignoring the problem like it doesn't exist, pretending like we have control over everything. But step two and three continue to pull us out of that cycle. Step two says there's a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. And step three says we have to give our will over to that higher power. A scripture points this out, frankly. There are these tragedies that kill these Galileans, and Jesus goes, do you think you have any more righteousness than they do? These tragedies. They had no control over what was going on. And yet you think you have more control? That's the first cycle we break. That we think we have control over all of our lives, over everything that we do. Second cycle is connected, I think, in some ways. It's a cycle that says that we aren't really as sinful as everyone else. Pointing our finger outwards instead of recognizing what our own sins and 
That's that step four. Searching and fearless inventory of ourselves. After we recognize we're powerless and we have a power greater than ourselves that can restore sustainability, we have to look and see where we have screwed up. We can't blame anyone else for what we've done. We can't look outside and point the finger. We have to recognize that we're not necessarily working to be better than someone else. That working is actually just to be better than the person we were before, as uh, someone recently said. That maybe we're just as screwed up as everyone else. That maybe, just maybe we have our own work we have to do. Maybe we have to go to therapy or find a support group or pray or meditate or study. We recognize that, yes, we're not any better than those Galileans. Not any better than those around us that we see doing wrong. And this whole story is embodied. Who are you if you think you're better than these people who died? Do you think you're any superior? Cycle three. We have to break thinking that we are no more sinful than anyone else. And finally, the last cycle I think that the story points us to that we have to break is a cycle of thinking that we are always the sinful one. The cycle of self-loathing and self-deprecation. Feminist scholar uh, Valerie Goldstein puts it this way. She says, Sometimes the sin for folks who are marginalized, for women and other marginalized groups, is actually not the sin of pride, but it's the sin of self-loathing, of self-loathing. As society often says, well, if you just dress better, then obviously you'll be better. If you just stop being so aggressive, then obviously you won't be as prideful. Just don't be as flamboyant as you are. Or don't talk about this uncomfortable thing that we don't want to talk about. Why don't you just act normal instead of being so prideful? When really... Jesus in this story calls us and says, do you think you're any better than these Galileans? Do you think that you're the normal one? Can you imagine how it must have felt to be those Galileans, hearing constantly the judgment and the criticism? Well, they must have done something wrong for them to die like that. Well, obviously God wanted them to go on to heaven because they must have sinned and screwed up pretty bad. But I think Jesus in this story calls us to embrace your Godness calls you to recognize and encourage yourself when you need that. To be confident of how beloved you are. How God calls you love. And God says to you, yes, you are a beloved child of God. No matter whatever past you have with you, no matter how uncertain you are of the future, you are beloved. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. In case y'all haven't figured out, Pastor Josh and I feel very strongly that, uh, you know, the 12 steps can be a, a very important Lenten discipline for everyone. A powerful, powerful way to focus our attention during these 40 holy days. You know, it can really be a struggle. It can be really difficult to embrace our belovedness, to embrace uh, our godness, to see within each of us, or to see within another person the, the image and the likeness of God. Especially when we get so caught up in the comparison game. Our culture, our society, we love to compare ourselves to one another, don't we? What we have, what we don't have, who we are, who we aren't, who they are, who they're not. We make life a contest. Thank God I am not like them, or why can't I be more like them? 
But if there's one other thing that our text reminds us of this morning, it is this. It is that God, even while we are playing the comparison game, God does not make those kinds of comparisons. God doesn't play that kind of game. I don't believe God plays any kind of game at all, actually. God sees us all the same way. Yes, as beloved, cherished, adored, loved children, but also as people who are in need. God sees us as people who are in need, people who are in need of repentance and people who are in need of transformation. Josh has already alluded to it, that the Gospel of Luke has this affinity, if you will, this affinity for the broken, for the separated, for the sinful. And I think that's why very early on in the Gospel, I think maybe it's chapter 3, we hear first the voice of John the Baptist, where he was proclaiming a message and a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John, of course, was the precursor to Jesus. And John preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus preached justice and grace and mercy and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the realm of God, the kingdom of God. Are the messages of John and Jesus connected? Repentance, forgiveness, justice, the kingdom of God, I believe they are. I believe they are deeply rooted in one another. They are connected... Because in order for the message of Jesus to be embodied, for, in order for the kingdom to come as we pray every week, we must first adhere to the message of John. To proclaim the age of God, to proclaim the love of God, to proclaim uh, the will of God, the hope of God, the kingdom of God, we must first be willing to face God. We must be willing to turn. Because that's what repent literally means. To turn. To turn away from or to turn towards. To turn ourselves, to turn our lives facing God. Because let's just name it and claim it. The only way that we can ever fully embrace God or the only way that God can ever really fully embrace us is by turning ourselves. By turning ourselves and facing God. I wish there was some way. I wish there was just some way, some formal process by which we could see that about ourselves. Maybe an intentional period of reflection and discernment where we, as God's people, take the time to prayerfully reflect, take the time to do that inventory. Not to do it so we can beat ourselves up over it, but to do it knowing and hoping what God knows and what God hopes that there is something better out there for each of us. That God wants something much greater, something much better, something much deeper for every single one of us as one of God's beloved children. And let's be honest. None of us are as good as we think we are on our best day. And none of us are as bad as we think we are on our worst day. We're all just somewhere in the middle. Which actually 
does make Josh right. The pot is more gray and less black and white. And I'll let you tell Judy that. (laughs) I just wish there was a way, some way, some process, some journey we could take that in the end allows us to produce the good fruit that God wants from us. That allows us to produce that which God knows we're capable of producing. If there was only some intentional period of time for us to do that, someone should really work on that.